Life Real Crime is a true crime podcast brought to you by Woody Overton and executive producer Toby Templey. sexual nature it should be for people that are 18 years or older heed my warning people i do not get the facts of these cases off the internet or from some television show the facts we're retelling you were presented to us by the victims of the crimes or the perpetrators who committed the crimes against the victims my description of the crime scenes are what i saw with my own two eyes If you're going to get offended, please turn this podcast off now. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. And as always, I'm your host, Woody Overton. Today, I'm going to be continuing the series titled Monsters. And that's part three, y'all. If you haven't listened to one and two, go back and listen to it. And again, I'm going to give an extra warning today. I, you know, I... I gave the warning on part one and part two, the extra warning about the brutality of it. And I, I don't know that it meant as much to y'all lifers. I guess you were thought, to, you know, you were going to hear more than you did or something like that. To me, this case being the single worst crime scene, as an investigator, I work where, where one body is involved. I should clarify that. A homicide, I guess, when I'm bringing y'all back through this scene, I'm seeing everything in my mind. You know, I don't use any notes and I'm raw and I'm unscripted and all that. So I'm literally 14 or 16 years later, however long it is, I'm t- taking myself back there, putting myself where I can see everything and smell everything. And and so it's just really graphic in my mind. And that's that's why I'm giving the warning. But today's episode is going to have some some tough stuff for you to hear in it. So if you if you're gonna get offended, please turn it off now. Turn this podcast off now. But um, before I get started, I want I want to do a correction. And y'all know sometimes I don't always say all the words right. That like Patreon is supposed to be Patreon, or in the Rapids Burning series, I said the DA's name, I pronounced his name incorrectly a couple times. Whatever. Generally, I don't care. But I did. I had a life reach out to me a couple times in episode one and two when I was talking about the blood spatter. I called it splatter with an L. It's definitely not splatter, y'all. It's blood spatter, okay? So I will correct that, and I stand corrected, or I sit corrected now telling you about it. So 
spatter, S-P-A-T-T-E-R. All right, so let's get into it. Stay, stay tuned to the end of the show for some announcements. It's the morning after the body was discovered. In, the, in episode one and two, I took you through the crime scene. And the last time I left you, uh, I told you what we had recovered from Walmart, which the video and the receipt of the guy who did it this time was our only suspect. But he was the son-in-law of the victim who lived in the residence where the 82-year-old white female was found brutally murdered. And again, my heart goes out to the family. But he's gone. And in fact, he was seen in in the middle of the night coming out of a Walmart in Mississippi by a family member, just a chance freak encounter, right? That still trips me out to this day. But so we meet at the office and we had eight detectives at the time. Now I think Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office has like 30. But out of the eight, two would have been on the night shift. So we had six if nobody was on vacation. And this was, I think, was the week before Thanksgiving. And anyway, everybody's there for the meeting. And so we start working over, we call it kicking the can, right? Or or bullshit session. You know, shit, you got to get it together. I mean, this is an obvious death penalty case because of the victim's age and certainly a death penalty case because of the brutality of the crime. So it's important. And we didn't rush, but, you know, you in any investigation, you have to go where the evidence leads you. And at this time, other than the victim's granddaughter saying that she believed this missing male was kidnapped by some, and she didn't say black, she said the N-words over and over and over again, drug dealers, and, and that they had done this to her grandmother. We didn't have any suspects. All we knew is this, this guy is missing and he lived in the house. He left work early the day before. And, and, you know, he's gone. So what do you do? You got to start. You got to you got to hit him and hit him hard. You got to run him down until he shows up or you can exclude him or something else turns up. And, and that's hotter, if you will. So we, we start working on him. Now, one of the things I want to do was go to his work and talk to the people that he worked with and see what he said when he came in the office the day before. His son said he came in and he left early, or way early is what I think he said. But he had to have more contact. I don't know if he had a secretary or whatever, but we need to go over and find out. But there are other things we need to find out, including... We already knew he had a company truck, but we need to know what what's, what are the rules in the company truck. If he doesn't show up in it, are you going to report it stolen? Right? Did he show up for work today? We don't know. And we want to know, does he have a company cell phone? If so, can we get access to it? Or, or are we going to have to get a warrant? And does he have company credit cards and you know, how does he get his money? I mean, we, we just really didn't know much about him. Now there was a long night process and scene. And the, the last thing we learned was that he had been seen in Mississippi. Uh, while we were still on the scene processing. So we need to get a detective to go or detectives to go to his work and just find out any kind of information that they can, you know, 
about his habits and his financial means and everything. So somebody was assigned to go do that. I don't remember who. And they left to go do that. We scheduled the autopsy for later that afternoon. And we needed to get back with the family, specifically this guy's wife, the victim's daughter, and find out the same thing. We we're going to find out at his work. You know, what was it? What were his habits? His cell phone company. We needed the name of that. We need his bank. Uh, we need just anything that we can get to start tracking this guy and looking for him. Now, right now, we didn't have any charges on him. And, and what are you going to do a bolo or be on the lookout for? Are you going to put it out there to the whole world? We're looking for a guy driving a, a maroon-colored truck. I mean, that's something else we needed from his work, the license plate number from the truck, the registration that the truck's going to come back to so we can enter him into NCIC. But still, what are you going to enter? We needed a charge, all right? And so came up with the idea that we needed to get some type of warrant for him and came up with the idea that we had probable cause depending really on what the people said to work, but when I was going to try to get probable cause to have him charged with possession of cocaine just so we can make the bolo or be on the lookout for ballot. Also, at the company, if he doesn't show up for work, what are his rules on that truck? If he doesn't show up for work and he's in the company truck, does he have to call in or is he not to drive the truck when he's not at work? If we can get something like that in Louisiana, that charge would be unauthorized use of a movable, not auto theft. Okay. Let me explain the difference. An auto theft is when you steal a vehicle and you, you tend to permanently deprive the owner of the vehicle. I mean, like somebody gets into your shit and they're gone, right? And they don't know them or anything like that. Unauthorized use of a movable is like, let's say your roommate takes your car without your permission and goes to wherever and they come back. If you want to charge them with it, you can, that's actually a charge in the state of Louisiana. You can, they use your vehicle without your permission, unauthorized use of. And a lot of times in these work cases where people wouldn't return vehicles, that's what we charge them with unauthorized use of a movable. I mean, movable because it could be a boat or hell, a bicycle or whatever. If it's something that drove and you didn't have permission to use it, it's a charge. But we had to start somewhere, and we were starting in scratch. And the probable cause is 50% plus one, y'all. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt. You do not have to wait to make an arrest in, especially in a homicide case, till you have beyond a reasonable doubt, okay? And, and, and you've heard me talk about cases in the past, like Courtney Coco's, and they're now they're waiting to go be, you know, way beyond a reasonable doubt. Anything that a defense attorney is going to prove a trial, well, should, you'd never solve a case in the world if you, if you conducted law enforcement like that. Again, we're following the lead. we got to get some type of charge on a guy. That's our main thing. So Calvin and I went to the autopsy. And again, the autopsies at the time were conducted in a metal building behind Seals Funeral Home in Denham Springs, Louisiana. 
in that metal building, I'll describe it to you as you walk up. There's a the roll-up door, if you're facing the building, there's a roll-up door where they would back the hearse and stuff in, like a roll-up metal door to your left. And to the right, it's like a little porch with an overhang with the main door that you walk in on. And there's no secretary or anything. You walk in, there's like a, a little love seat in a, a corner to your right. And guess what's directly across from that? The bodies. Like you see in the movie where they have the silver wall and the doors that open and the trays that come out and the bodies are on. That's it. That's the coolers. This building was made for efficiency, not for comfort. It certainly wasn't made for the public to view. Then you walk right past the bodies and there, uh, there's a right on the right hand side of that love seat was a small enclosed half bath, a toilet and a sink and, and a door, right? As soon as you walk past that, on the right-hand side is the first body station, is what I'll call it. And that's where they embalm the bodies and stuff for the funerals. And you take a, it's that room, y'all, is, is like a yellow ceramic tile. Uh, the floors and even the walls over halfway up. And then there there is a, a metal table, a slab, if you will, where the bodies were embalmed in they have hoses that are connected to it, et cetera, and they go and run into a drain. And it's pretty gruesome to think about, but I mean, that's how all the bodies are done. When they, Basically, the embalming equipment was in that room. But that room dead ends. But right before you get to that table, you take a left into a doorway, and inside the door, you're standing, you walk into the doorway, you're standing in between two more body setups, table setups, and the one to your left and the one to your right. The one to the left is where we always conducted the autopsies unless you had multiple victims and sometimes they would use two tables. So we get there, we go in, the coroner is there, they have to document everything for, we have to match up the photos on the body bag and all that and the coroner is gonna be there period, for the autopsy. But the coroner does not conduct the autopsy itself. The coroner, I mean, the forensic pathologist who was contracted by Livingston Parish conducted the autopsies. The reason why, didn't have that many murders. I mean, there's no reason to have a full-time pathologist like a, a big city. And the guy that did it was Dr. Corkin, and he was a genius. And he was... Y'all heard me talk about him in past episode, like pants on the ground, et cetera. Just a genius. And he was a, an elderly man, short, bald headed, but, and every time he'd come in, he would bring his wife and I'm sure they're both deceased by now. And his wife was a career, like a nurse, I believe like an RN, but she was in the early stages of dementia and, but she would come and, uh, in case he needed any assistance or whatever. But Dr. Corkin would come in, and they had lights in these rooms, but he would come in, he would bring his own stuff in, his own autopsy tools, and, and he brought this this tall lamp, and it looked like it came from Walmart, but it had like six bulbs on it, and he would bring it in. That's one of the items he'd get when he'd come in. And so we're there. The body's been placed on a table. Dr. Corkin comes in, he brings in his his lamp stand, plugs it in, and he's like, you know, he's always got something funny to say. 
but he he was a dry humor, if you will, you know. But anyway, he comes in. We match up the uh, the tag on the bag. He holds it up for us. We verify it with the picture. He verifies with the picture. Now, y'all, he's been doing this forever. I mean, he's done thousands of autopsies, and he's testified in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of murder trials. And but I told him, I say, Doc, and you know, this is what we have before we begin. And I told him about the eighty-two-year-old victim. I told him about the severe trauma to the head. And he's 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 kind of a quiet man. He's shaking his head and he's listening, and he's taking it all in. Now this guy has seen so many thousands of dead bodies. And we established a chain of custody and cut the tag on the bag. And y'all, these bags are black like nylon, and it's on the table. And what he takes over, we don't we don't do anything from that point on unless he wants a photograph or needs some type of information. But we stand we stand there and we observe. And so what he does is cuts the lock, okay, and we take the pictures, all that. Then he does everything. He's 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 got his pants on. And yes, half the time they would fall to the ground, but he's got on his scrubs, if you will. And then he puts on his scrubs. He would change before he started. He puts on his scrubs and, and he unzips the bag. Then he folds the bag open onto the metal table, not where the the sides were exposed, but enough where he could begin to process or to begin to view and process the body. So he unzips the bag, pulls it down, opens it up. Then he will lift her up and and pull the bag without turning it to the left or right where anything could spill out. He pulls the bag down until the victim is laying on the table. Then he takes that bag and, and puts it to the side. But nothing can spill out of it, and that's important later on. I'll tell you why. So the victim is now on the table and she's still in her her nightgown and I told him about it being pushed up, possible sexual assault in the panties pulled down, possible sexual assault. I also told him what I observed about the blood not being on the panties, the blood spatter not being on the panties like it was all over the walls and everything. And I even showed him some pictures of, of the walls and and what it looked like before what it's her underwear and everything looked like obviously before we rolled her over and and put her in the bag because then the underwear got some blood on it so i showed him his pictures and he's like okay so he cuts her gown off puts it in an evidence bag why because it's going to be sent in for dna looking for hair fibers or anything like that but there was nothing obvious on the clothing and so now you have your victim, the deceased, on the table. They're laying face up, nude. And he always starts with the head, and he works his way down to the feet. Now, the problem, that's not the problem, but the issue with this one was the condition I told you about the victim's head. It just was unbelievable. And Dr. Corkin, when he, he stopped, and the, the bag's put to the side, and he's looking at her. He's just, I mean, I told you, he's kind of a quiet guy, unless he said one of his funny jokes. But he's looking, and he's staring, and he's looking. And he looked up at me, and he didn't say anything. And we met eyes, and he looked back down, and he looked back at me. 
And he said, it's going to be a death penalty. And I said, yes, sir. I, I believe that in my heart. And he said, well, you, you know, I always do great work, he said, but we're really going to have to take our time on this one. He said, of all the head traumas I've seen, this has to be the worst or one of the worst or the most amount of damage I've ever seen to a human head. And y'all, you look at it, it's just, it just doesn't exist. Uh, I can't, I don't know how to put it in context for you. And I'm not trying to sensationalize, but what he has to do, he starts to deserve the head from the outside and the hair. And he's going through now, but each tear, and there were so many, each tear, he would take a ruler and put it up against the tear. And then he would say, take a picture of it and then take a picture of it. Right. So why? Of course, it's going to help determine the cause of death, but he's trying to count all the damage to the head and it's just too much. Uh, I mean, we took picture after picture, but the problem was there were so many blows to the head that he started on one side of the head and worked over, and then we turned over and did the back side of the head. But there were so many blows that some of them were overlapping. So if you hit, hit, let's say it's a watermelon, you hit a watermelon with a hammer and you get the indentation and the tear in it, right? If you hit the watermelon almost in the same spot, spot and the, the wounds are actually touching, then it just kind of becomes a larger wound, right? Maybe with a little bit different shape on it. And that's how the victim's head looked. It was really hard to tell or get an accurate count on how many blows there were because a lot of them were overlapping. Beats of shit. It, and it just, I mean, I can't imagine what she went through. Okay. And at the, um, yeah, I just pray that maybe she, she was unconscious or, or something after like the first blow or whatever to, to receive this much damage because I, but then again, I know she probably wasn't because why would you continue to beat over and over again unless they are fighting, unless they're resisting, unless they're still saying something. So I don't remember y'all exactly how many blows he came up with. I think he quit at 30 something tears and skull and the face and, and all that. It, I, it could have been like way, way higher, but it was 30 something. And then the, but by the time we photographed the whole head, the problem was not all the tears when he turned her over and was going through the hair on the back of the head. Remember I told you it was blood everywhere and then the tears and all that. He found a hole, perfect, almost perfect, you would say, little hole on the back of her skull, which we, we couldn't have known on the scene because of the amount of blood and then just, you know, the way everything was. But remember, he's going meticulously inch by inch over the head. And he gets in, he goes through all the hairs individually, et cetera. And when he gets to that one spot and he, he stops and he takes it and he cuts around and shades around the, the hole where it was. Well, once he does that and the bloody hairs out of the way and all that, you see the hole and it was a bullet hole. And there was tattooing 
around the wound, meaning it was a contact wound from a weapon. From Remember at the crime scene, I told you we found some bullets that were not shot, unspent, meaning that the bullet was still in the casing. Okay, when you look at a bullet, for you, those of you who don't know, when you look at a bullet, you have the metal part, and which at the very end has the the spot where the firing pin strikes, and inside that metal part is the gunpowder. But inside the cavity of the metal part is the gunpowder. The bullet itself, the metal part, actually fits into the end of that, what we call the casing. The casing is where the gunpowder is housed. When the firing pin strikes it, it creates a spark, which makes the gunpowder inside the casing explode, and the power of that explosion is what propels the bullet out. Now, I know y'all probably all know this, but I'm just telling my story. Let me go. Okay, let me do what I do. When the bullet is propelled out, what remains behind is the empty casing. Okay, and remember I told you I found one empty casing at the scene. But I also found, and it was a 22 long. Okay, and the difference between a 22 long and a 22 short, I didn't explain that on the, on the previous episode. A 22 long only fits in certain types of 22 rifles or pistols. It's just that the casing is a little bit longer. If the, the bullet size is the same, it's still a 22 caliber, but the casing contains more gunpowder. Therefore, it is a stronger propulsion that the bullet gets when it behind the explosion when it comes out. 22 short, more commonly for pistols, is still a 22 bullet, but less powder, and they won't fire from the same gun, especially older rifles. But there were 22 shorts that were not spent, meaning they had not been fired. The bullet was still housed inside the casing, and the gunpowder still inside the casing, and the, the firing pin had not struck them in the blood in the crime scene. But the one that we found spent was a 22 long, and I told the doc that. So he gets to a certain point where all that's photographed, and then he takes the bone saw. He rolls back over, takes the bone saw, and then he makes a completely circular cut all the way around the skull. Now, this is a saw. It's a vibrating saw. It only cuts when it's making contact with something meaning that it doesn't spin freely the rest of the time. You don't have to worry about cutting yourself. But he puts it against the skull, and he makes a perfect circle all the way around the top of your head, cutting into the skull itself. And normally, it, it's, it's a sound that I'll never forget, no matter how many years I haven't done it. But the he makes that cut around, and he takes a tool and almost like a screwdriver, if you will, and then a little hammer thing and hits in and it has to break the suction on the skull. And when he does that, uh, let me back up. Before he does, starts the uh, sawing part, he, he makes a an incision on the scalp and basically peels all, all of your hair and everything. Basically, your whole all your skin he puts it to the front of your face, if that makes sense, okay? 
basically he's scalloping, and but he starts in the back, takes up all the skin, all the hair, and pulls it over and sets it on to the front of the skull, exposing the skull so he can use the the bone saw, if you will, the vibrating bone saw. That's when he makes the cut. Now, before he makes the cut, again, he takes measurements of the skull where that bullet hole was, but also on this victim, he is now taking measurements or indentations from the beating that she took to because there's many, many fractures on her skull. So he had to figure it out. It's like a puzzle. And he had to figure out how to put it together. But once he takes the top of the head off, then he's able to go in and see what kind of damage there is to the brain. Now he's taking notes and he's doing his thing and he's jamming it out and he goes inside. And one of the things they do is he takes the brain out. It takes all the organs out of your body at some point during autopsy and weighs them and makes his notes. But when he popped the skull and goes in, uh, the brain was, was just tore up and that was from, and he said, they said, this is going to be from the bullet. He said, I bet you the bullet's in here. And he said, I don't think it's going to be intact. And uh, he was right. There was no exit wound, but the bullet was a, a, a he, he recovered soft shards of lead from inside the brain that had kind of scattered. When uh, 22, there's not a lot of lead in the bullet part. And when most of the time when it hits something, it'll flatten out or tear apart. And that's what happened on it. It, it, the bullet went into the brain and just kind of turned it into mush and hit the skull and maybe bounced around a little bit and split up. So he, he's got to go through it meticulously and pick the pieces out and in case they try to put it back together and determine what caliber of heat. Based off his experience, he, he said, I can already tell you it's going to be a twenty-two caliber from the size of the wound to the skull. He couldn't tell you if it's twenty-two short or twenty-two long, just twenty-two bullet because it's the same size. Goes through the rest of the autopsy and, and, and you know, they, they cut you open and they take out all your organs and they weigh them and all that stuff, right? It, it works from the head down. And once you get, he gets done with the skull, he puts this, the, the top of what's there on her, top of your skull back on and put, puts your face back on, if you will, flips the skin back over and then he goes to work down and he, and he cuts you from your neck down to your bottom of your abdomen in and across, and then he, he splits you open and takes out the organs and weighs them, et cetera. But that really wasn't really the problem on her. He's, he said, I guarantee the cause of death was a 22 bullet. And he said it could have been these, from some the, these other wounds to her skull. I said, but he said, why would you shoot somebody, you know, if she, they weren't already dead or if they're already dead? But sometimes that happens, but... Either way, he's got enough scientific evidence to prove that. And what are we really worried about now? The rape in because she was found with her night down up, et cetera. So he goes down, goes to all the organs. I'll save you the, the time of it, right? He, he works the body like he's done thousands of others. And then he gets down to the vagina and all that. And, and, and he did what he does. And he says there's absolutely no sign of penetration out of anywhere, the anus, the vagina. He said no sign. I mean, he's looking for hairs to collect any type, anything, right? And, and there's nothing there. And he said, I, I just absolutely can tell you 
that she wasn't right, but even he still took swabs in case there was DNA or something like that. And that concluded the autopsy, basically. And his finding was it was definitely a homicide and that she was, whether she died from the blows he had, he couldn't say for sure, but he can definitely say if she wasn't dead from the blows to the head and the damage to her face and her skull, then she definitely died from the gunshot wound contact gunshot wound to the back of the head. It's fucked up. And, you know, I guess it's compounded for me because I've done so many of that. I mean, autopsies never bother me, but as far as seeing the body and all that stuff, but just, just think about this lady who couldn't even walk and she was so severely beaten. And now you throw on top of that that she's been basically executed, gun to the back of the head, whether it's a pistol or a rifle, whatever. But we only had one Smith shell casing, and that was the long. And I'm assuming from experience that the 22 long belongs to a rifle. So that means that she's laying halfway in and out of the door after the beating, and they take a rifle and put it to the back of her head and shoot her while she's face down, execute her like a, you wouldn't even do a rabbit dog that way. And I, I still don't have an explanation for the 22 short bullets being in the crime scene. So anyway, go back to the office to find out what other detectives have found out by going to his work and stuff like that. And this is what they said. They interviewed several, and I'm not going to say names. They interviewed people that he worked with. And the, the day prior, he came into work and he stayed like an hour maybe hour and 45 minutes, but then he told one of them that worked there, he said, well, my stomach's messed up. I don't feel good. I'm going to go home. And he splits, right? Not to be seen again until approximately 2 a.m. in the morning coming out of Walmart, Mississippi. He did not have permission to, you know, use the truck to be in Mississippi at 2 o'clock in the morning. We found that. Also, he had not called in on this day. Nobody, of course, they're still trying to call him and all that. His son's trying to call him, et cetera. He's in the wind. He's a ghost. Cell phone was not theirs. He had access to, I believe, a company card. We got all the information on that. The detectives asked the owners, or the owner, you would say, what, what did they want to do about the truck? And if he didn't return the truck, the, would they pursue charges for unauthorized use of removal? And the answer was yes. And he also had access to money the day before. And I believe it was like, I believe it was like $3,500 that he was supposed to take care of. And he didn't, it wasn't done. So they were asked, would they pursue charges on that also? So we're getting back. We're having our meeting. That's, we found out he left work early, not been seen again, uh, got all his personal information, the, the work cards and stuff like that. So what do you do? No more calls are coming in. And this has been on the news. I forgot to tell you the night before the news was out there the whole time and not, it would, you know, it was on the news for 10 o'clock and then it was on the news that that morning and, about the homicide of this this lady, not no suspects' names or anything like that. 
And what do you do? Well, shit, you got to keep gathering information. But we needed a warrant. And so we made, we had typed up a Tina Stafford secretary. She's, I mean, she already knew. If I, if I told her a charge, she already knew what to say because she'd done thousands of them for us over the year. And then I can't even call her secretary. She, she came, kind of ran the office and said, Tina, I need a warrant unauthorized use of movable and gave the company's name and gave this guy's name and said he, he's gone with it. He was seen in Mississippi at 2 o'clock in the morning. He did not have permission. And she typed it up. We also did a warrant, and yes, it was a bit of a reach, but not, it only has to be 50% plus one. We did a warrant for possession of cocaine, being that it was found inside his residence. His wife did not know about it, and he left work early and said he was going home, and, and certainly the deceased wasn't doing cocaine, making lines of cocaine on the coffee table in the living room. So we got those warrants and went and had a meeting with a judge and told him the truth. And this is where we're at. And we need to get a bolo on this guy. And this is what we have. And, and you know, unauthorized use is slam dunk. That, I mean, that's that's in the, in the possession of cocaine. Could be inferred. He, he said he was going there. He lives there. And the cocaine was found there. A little bit of reach, but I mean, you got to do what you got to do, right? If they throw it out, so what? The, uh, you, you need to get him in. You need to get your hands on him. So Calvin and I, we got the warrants. We enter him into NCIS. Oh, we got the vehicle information, the truck. So now if anybody, any cop in the United States of America runs this license plate, on this truck, it's going to come back as an unauthorized use, basically a stolen vehicle, and they're going to stop it and they're going to arrest who's ever in the vehicle because they don't have permission to be in it. And so that's we get that done, get it started. It goes into the NCIC computer, and any cop, if he they happen to stop him, will make the arrest. Okay, we then go to meet with the family sometime later that, that evening. Uh, it was at the sister's house who was married to the Baton Rouge City police officer. And we called we called the victim's daughter, and that's where she was. We need to go get more information. We need to find out, like I said, about the cell phone and bank accounts and all this so we can start tracking this guy. And we go over there. And we get there, outside is the female who kept using the N-word and uh, he told us she believed it was drug dealers and she's outside and, and she's smoking and she has on long, long, a long sleeve shirt, blue denim, like a lighter color, not like a dark blue jean, but like a lighter color shirt. It's untucked. And it's all the way down to her hands. And she she sees us pulling up and she throws a cigarette butt out and she puts her hands under her arms. And I said, hey, we're here to see your mama. And she said, come on, I'll take you in. And she brought us a really nice home, brought us into the home. And the mom 
and the sister that was married to the Baton Rouge City Cop, and the Baton Rouge City Cop were there. And we said, hey, we need to talk to you and ask you some questions. She said, can my daughter be in the room? I said, and I was thinking, uh, I don't really want the one to be in the room, but okay. And she said, no, I mean, my daughter who lives here. And that was the Baton Rouge City Cop's wife. I said, that's fine. And you, you can bring him in too. So we go in the room and we just get start getting the general information. But she told us, she said, listen, I, I got to tell you, my other daughter's not acting right. And her sister conferred and then said she's just all, you know, whacked out, if you will. And that the, that's not the term they use, y'all. It was, it was something like that. And then I told him, I, was, I played it down, right? I said, I, I get that and understand and, and duly noted. I said, but, you know, everybody takes grief differently, et cetera. I said, what we're here for is information on him. We need his cell phone. We need to know the name of the company. We got it. We need to know his bank accounts and does he have any credit cards and all this stuff. And she said, yeah, and I'll get you the information. I'll get my daughter to get you the information or son can go get it. And, you know, basically we want to know that. And certainly we want to know had they heard from him and they hadn't. And we gather all the information and of course they're upset and, and you know, want to know do we have any leads? And we just say, hey, we're, look, we're looking at everybody. We're working it hard. And she asked about her husband. I said, hey, you know, you, you know, we know he was seen in Mississippi, but we had to tell them, you know, that we did do the autopsy and it was definitely a homicide. And it did not go into that she was shot in the head, right? And they want to know how. And we just said head trauma. Uh, we didn't release that back. And I'm kind of paraphrasing this, I mean, we, we certainly were there probably an hour and a half with him talking to him, consoling on Calvin and I, you know, again, Calvin is saying probably just as much as me in, in all of this, but I'm telling the story, right? So we we do what we do and we're gentle with the family, we're gentle with, you know, the victim's daughter, but we, same time, we're pulling information, pulling information, pulling information till we get enough where I look at Calvin, he looks at me and we're like, okay, we're done. But we go out into the hallway and see y'all, y'all can just wait in here. Calvin and I are going to talk in the living room for a minute and then you know, he will call you later or whatever. So we go in the hallway and I told him, I said, hey, dude, we got we need to go check that girl for injuries. And he's like, you're right. And, and we were kind of whispering and then she was, turns out she was in the kitchen. She didn't hear us say, and then we start to walk to, and then turn to the kitchen part to go to the door and there she is. And I'm like, hey, hey, and I called her name. I said, you know, do you mind coming to talk to? She said, well, I don't know why they wouldn't want me in there to talk. Y'all been in there talking all this time and why I couldn't come in? I said, I don't know shit. I mean, we, we were just getting information on your your stepdad and all his accounts and everything like that. She said, I just think it's funny that blah, 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 blah. She just kind of went off. And I was like, just step outside and talk to us. And this was a clear bluebird November day, but it's late in the evening. The shadows were falling. The street lights hadn't come on yet, but it was almost that time, right? Like five, five fifteen. I could just—I see it in my mind's eye, and she's got that long thing on. But guess what? She's got her hands tucked under her pits again, or under her armpits. And and I'm noticing that. And I knew Calvin. We just talked about it, and so we just talked to her a little bit. Hey, you know, you hadn't heard from? No, I hadn't heard from that motherfucker. And da 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 da, going on. But then, you know, to her, maybe not to her. 
But to us, it was very clear that she had her hands tucked away where we couldn't see them. And so anyway, just go through bullshitting her three, whatever, trying to ease her back down off the family thing. And, and, but she's just out there. Right. And finally, at some point I said, Hey, you know what? We do in any investigation. I said, you are absolutely not a suspect or anything like that. I said, but you know, you were there last night and you said you haven't seen this guy. She said, and I hadn't, I hadn't seen him in days. I said, okay. And you were at home and you were home alone. She said, yeah. I said, can anybody prove that you were there by yourself? She said, what do you mean? I said, I mean, like, did you outside and talk to one of your neighbors? Did you uh, call your husband while he was at work? We can verify phones or anything like that. She said, why are you asking? I said, you know what? Let me go ahead and advise you your rights. I said, you are no way under arrest. I said, we talk, everybody we talk to in this investigation, we're going to advise them their Miranda rights. I said, you have the right to remain silent. Anything, boy, her face just went ashen. Like, I mean, just pale, pale blood just drained to her feet, but she still got her hands on her arms. I said, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney prior to and during any question. If you can't afford one, a court point one for you. And look, she just goes fucking white. You'd have thought I shot her or something. And she was like, why did you do that? I said, no, 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 no. And I said, we do it for everybody. I said, because I never know what people are going to tell me. And then I'm, I'm really talking to her almost like a child at this point. And I put my arm on and I said, it's okay. It's okay. And she kind of pulled away a little bit and still kept her hands on her arms. I said, look, I said, we got to ask everybody any questions, right? I said, I asked your sister whose house is this. I asked her where she was and could anybody verify it, et cetera. We, we got to verify that your mama wasn't home, you know? And we asked everybody questions. And she was kind of like, thrown, taken aback by it, if you will. I said, but let me, let me ask you this. I said, it's not really cold today. And it's, uh, it's probably like 76 degrees, y'all. It was, it was, a, it was a warm day for mid-November. And I said, it's not really cold today. I said, are you cold natured? And she said, I don't know why. I said, because you got this big, long, button-up uh, blue jean shirt on and she said, so, and I said, and, but boy, she, I, I don't think she realized she did it. She pushed her hands further under her armpits at that time. And I said, well, so I just need to know, are you cold natured? And she said, well, I don't understand. I said, but I said, I'm in short sleeves and in, or actually I was in a dress shirt with a tie. I said, but my, my shirt sleeves are rolled up. I said, Calvin's are rolled up. I said, hell of us, it wasn't cold in the house. I said, Ian, do you always wear long sleeve shirts like that? She said, yeah, yeah, I do. I said, well, are you cold right now? She said, well, no, because I got my shirt on. I said, well, then let me ask you this. I said, why are you standing there with your arm, your hands underneath your armpits? And she was like, and she said, what do you mean? But she didn't take them out. I said, every since we turned into the driveway when we got here, you've had you saw us, you threw your cigarette out, and you put your hands underneath your armpits. And she said, well, I always keep my hands under my armpits. That's well, cool. I said, I get that. I mean, uh, different stroke, different folks, right? I said, but do you mind if I look at your hands? And she said, what do you want to look at my fucking hands for? She kind of started going off. I said, because I just want to look at them. I said, do you have any cuts or anything? 
on your hands, fresh cuts. And y'all, I'm thinking fat drops, fat drops in the master bedroom, fat drops through the crime scene, the broken base, the bottle, blood that I did not spatter, blood drops all throughout the house, including the gun cabinet in different places. And I'm thinking, you know, this, I mean, I really didn't probably think that she had anything to do with it, but I, I, she kind of gave me the, the gut instinct from when we first got on the scene and she was doing all that hollering and screaming. And yes, and I get there's different stages of grief and all that bullshit and everybody handles it differently, but I didn't do it long enough. And guess what? I know whenever I get that little gut feeling, I listen to it, right? And now she's really upset and I don't have anything. I don't have any proof. I haven't, we haven't had chance to go talk to her neighbors and see if she was at home or pull phone records or cell phone records, or, you know, to the, I didn't even know if she had a cell phone, cell phone, we, you know, if we could get a search warrant to see if her cell phone was pinging off the tower by the victim's house. I had nothing at this point other than a gut instinct. And she said, I'm not showing you my hands. But she said, am I under arrest? I said, no, you're not under arrest. I told you you're not under arrest. And, she said, well, I, you know, she said, I cut myself all the time and um, I had, you know, I wear long sleeves because I'm cold and, I, you know, I'm just not. And she said, you know what? I don't have anything else to say. She turned around and she went inside, slammed the door. How you living? How you like that? And guess what? She'd be totally innocent. But. I was damn sure gonna find out. But God told me, the stepdad's in the wind. But the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And she had been the squeaky wheel the whole time. Calvin and I load up. We're both thinking the same thing. She definitely was on her radar. Let's just put it like that. So, y'all, 50 minutes in, we're going to go ahead and stop it right there for this episode. You do not know what's going to happen, even if you know this case. You, It is simply crazy, right? Victims' son-in-laws and when victims' granddaughter gave me the heebie-jeebies. Maybe not the heebie-jeebies. Victims' granddaughter gave me Pauls, if you will, and she put herself on the radar. Okay, so we're gonna stop it from there. And look, this I'm telling you, I don't have any notes, I haven't looked at anything, and I'm recording this strictly from my visual memory. So if I get some minor detail wrong or whatever, then it is what it is, it's not with malintent. But I'm stopping this part three of Monsters for this week. I'm going through, continue to do the series until I get done telling the story. Listen, there's a hell of a lot more to come and stuff that was never, ever released. So that being said, thank you for tuning in and listening to part three of Monsters. A couple of show notes, y'all, before we close out. I just, again, want to thank everybody for 
for listening and liking and tuning in. And uh, if you get a chance, go leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us out. The stats, I don't know why, but it does. Check out our social media, Instagram. I think I'm up to like 6,000 followers on the, it's at Real Life Real Crime. And at, that's 6,000 followers just on that, which, you you know, I post different stuff on there every day. I try to post at least one different picture or a video or something every day. And some of it's true crime related. Some of it's not, but most of it's funny. It's different than anything you're going to get on the rest of our social media. Rest of social media, Facebook page, the our, our private group, which is Real Life Real Crime Friends, Fans, and Crew, K-R-E-W-E. Again, it's Louisiana play on words. We just passed 28,000 members in our private crew page. And look, it, it's y'all, that page is dedicated to true crime. If I post something that's different or something that's posted is different that, that I gave permission for it to, and if I post something that's different, then guess what? It's my page. I want to, I, I think it's pertinent enough to put, post it. But that's for our diehard lifers who love true crime and they get to go in and do posts about true crime stuff and you go in there it's a lot if you like real life real crime you're gonna love that crew page go join the we have the real life real crime lanyard page which is another private group for our lifers you can go in there and post anything anything you want doesn't have to be true crime related we had to do that because we were getting so many requests to post and and that and i think that's that's in the thousands of members also but if you have hobbies or you sell them whatever Go post it in there, and I post a lot of stuff in there also. And then we have our regular pages and all that. And look, if, if I get so many friend requests today, I cannot accept any more friends. Facebook blocks you out at 5,000. I don't want anybody to think I'm, I'm being an ass. I would love to, to you know, have you all be my friends in Facebook, but I can't. I'm blocked from Facebook from doing that. So I do have a regular real-life real crime page where you can message me or do posts or whatever, and, and I will answer you. And I, I do spend a lot of time on social media, and I try to answer everybody. If I miss something, I apologize, because shit, that's a lot to keep up with. But generally, some, sometimes I'll find messages somebody sent me on a page I hadn't been to in like two or three days, and I message them back. So anyway, life is just love you to death. Thank you so much. Patreon members, absolutely. Thank you so much for the support and continue to support us and your Financial donation makes the the show go. You're going to be getting your full length episode, November episode. Oh, well, you know what? I want to tell everybody happy Thanksgiving. Uh, I'm recording this Monday before Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to all you lifers. Love and appreciate each and every one of you. I hope you have a blessed, great turkey day. Stay safe from the COVID. It's just crazy times, right, with the COVID and everything. But anyway, I hope you all stay safe and appreciate and love each and every one of you. LOPA, Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. Go to LOPA.org. Sign up to be an organ donor. It takes like two minutes when you go there, if you choose to do so. you And when you are deceased, if your organs are chosen to be used, then you're going to save a life or lives. And and I mean, I know one uh, Lopa donor saved like six lives 
these there are people out there that need your organs. You're not going to need them when you're dead. And it's a very, very, very slim chance that they're going to use your organs. It, it has to be under certain conditions when you die that, that they can be used. They don't just have a massive warehouse full of organs, y'all. It, it's, it's very, uh, when you, when you go to cease, when you go to cease, when you die, they, if you fit the criteria, then they, they have a team that comes in and does that. So be a hero, give the gift of life, give the gift of sight, these, and, you know, and use all your organs, right? But when you go to local.org, sign up under the Livingston Parish Literacy and Technology Center. The, they, they, the, when you go to sign up, they ask you, how'd you hear about them? Go to the Livingston Parish Literacy and Technology Center, Livingston Parish LP. You think I know it, uh, how many times I said it by now? LPLTC. Go to the section criminal justice students. Check that box. You know why? There's, there's people out there doing great work with this, not one with students, but the Kelly Jennings, the criminal justice teacher is just phenomenal. And Kim Alvin, the principal. And Southeastern is is part of the Livingston Parish Literacy and Technology Center. And y'all, that's Southeastern Louisiana University. And Miss Crystal Parson Basquiel. She's part of that too. And they're the ones that turn me on the LOPA. So just go sign up, be a hero, give the gift of life, and tune in next week for part four of Monsters. And I'm Woody Overton, the host of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. And until next time or ever, don't let me catch you down on murder by you. Peace. Real Crime is a true crime podcast brought to you by Woody Overton and executive producer Toby Template.